Software Engineering Radio, episode 99, Transactions. This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions and interviews on software engineering topics every 10 days. Thanks to our audience and the partners listed on our website for supporting the podcast. Welcome listeners to a new episode of Software Engineering Radio. In this episode, Bant and Anno are going to discuss transactions. But before we get started, let me remind you that on June 15, there is the deadline for the position papers for your participation for the SE Radio get-together. So if you want to participate at the, in the get-together uh, October 16th and 17th in Zweibrücken, Germany, this year, of course, um, please make sure you'll send us these position papers, small one- or two-page papers that explain a certain topic that you find interesting, that you want to discuss at the get-together. Please make sure this uh, position paper reaches us by um, June 15. And uh, by the way, please make sure, ideally, it's either text or PDF and you don't send us Word files or ODF files or something. Okay, thanks. Uh, now let's get on with the episode. As I said, it's Bunt and Anno talking about transactions. So Anno, what are transactions? Transactions are sort of a all or nothing way of, of dealing with persistent data, usually. Um, the term is used quite loosely, so it can refer to a business transaction as in I give you money, you give me a new computer. Um, but Mm, the main focus here will be on um, technical transactions as with a database. I start a transaction, do several things, and in the end I either commit the transaction or I roll it back. But this technical transaction thing need not, deal, need not be about a database. There is all, all kinds of other sources of data um, that can participate in a transaction such as messaging, middleware, web services, um, basically anything that has persistent data or does persistent changes. Um, so, well, that's basically what a transaction is. It's about um, doing modifications, treating them as a whole thing, one unit of work, and it has a well-defined beginning, a well-defined end, and all that happens in between is all or nothing. Okay. So, um, when talking about technical transactions, we define technical transactions by mainly four properties, which are atomic, consistent, isolated, and durable. In that context, you also maybe know the acronym ACID, which stands for Atomic, Consistent, Isolated, and Durable. So, um, Arno, why don't you start explaining the atomic uh, property? Sure, um, I'll do that. Um, this is sort of the, the ideal way of looking at, at a transaction. It's the sort of the beautiful 10,000-foot overflight thing, the way um, things should be. We'll get more dirty after that. Um, having said that, atomic means the all-or-nothing part of a transaction. It means, well, atom means it cannot be split into several parts. And it basically means that if several changes to data are made or several persistent modifications are made by the transaction, um, they are either all made or none of them is made. This is very important um, for, for different kinds of systems. For example, let's, let's look at a banking system and you do a transfer from one account to another. Then two modifications need to be made. This certain amount is deduced from one account and it is added to another account. And it sort of is important for the bank that... Um, either both made modifications are made or none of them at all is made. They are the, Both changes are one unit... Um, you either want both or none at all, otherwise you are in serious trouble and lose money as a bank. So that's what the atomic part is about. Um, yeah, it's sort of the, the easiest to understand property of the, the acid things. The second of them is um, consistency. Consistent is basically about the idea behind transactions. Sort of you want to ensure that things remain consistent. Um, it's sort of vague, um, and you can't always have this wheel, as you will see presently, but it's sort of more more a vague, vapory kind of thing um, about transactions that you want to have, you want to ensure, but it's not a well-defined technical thing. Um, the third one is isolation. 
Mm. And this is one of the, well, sort of the trickiest part of the, the trickiest property of transactions. Um, it means this, that while one transaction makes modifications, the intermediate state is invisible to other transactions running at the same time. Mm. The idea here is that read access, well, this is basically, this is a property that is basically interesting for databases. Um, the idea here is that read access is also always part of a transaction, which is to some degree isolated from other transactions. And, well, let's, let's look at a, a, an insurance um, company as an example. And there's one person working on a contract for, for one of the customers and sort of adding things over a long time, working interactively with the application, a transaction running for two or three hours, let's say, while this um, accountant is, or whether this, this person is adding data to this insurance contract. During this time, no other person or system in the insurance company must see any of the intermediate states because they are plainly inconsistent. Um, or another example where this is important is when we get back to the banking system with the money transfer between two accounts. Um, even if the, the transfer is atomic, that is, either it is committed as a whole or rolled back as a whole, you still have intermediate states. First, you do an update statement, or well, it's not usually an update, but anyway, first you modify one of the accounts to deduce the money, and afterwards you modify the second account to, to add the money. And let's say there is a report over all accounts because the bank wants to know how much money it manages, actually. Um, then this long-running report across all accounts must never see an intermediate state of a transfer from one account to another, because then it would either count the amount twice, because it was first added to the second account and then deduced from the first, or um, not at all, because it was first deduced from the other, then the report was running, then it is added to the second. That's what isolation is about. You always have, or usually have, intermediate states that are inconsistent, um, and other transactions, other systems, other users should not see the intermediate states always be presented with a consistent um, view of the system as a whole. And that's what isolation is about. Um, intermediate states are isolated from, from being seen by other um, transactions. And the, the fourth property is de-durable, and it means that the, the modifications are actually persistent. A trans transaction is about, um, about persistent data, about persistent state that is viewable, perceivable in the long run. So that's what ACID is about. That's what ACID stands for. And those four properties are sort of the ideal world view of transactions, the way we would all like to have things, but can't always have them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as you just mentioned, um, that's the ideal um, view on on transactions. However, um, in, in the real world, we have to make some, some compromises here, um, especially with respect to isolation. So why do we have to make these compromises and uh, what are these compromises? Okay, what we just talked about is the, the ideal worldview of, of transactions, of isolation. No transactions see anything that happens in between. Um, in reality, we usually don't have this. And as we will see, there are two things to, that cause this, two reasons why we don't have this or don't want, want to have it, actually. Um, the first is isolation has a price in terms of, of processing power and storage space, sort of a trade-off between the two. And the other thing is um, you, you pay a price in terms of locking. That is, um, no two transactions do the same thing at the same time. One has to wait until the other is finished. That's the the two things that that limit the or the, that, that those two things are the price you have to pay for having isolation of having high isolation levels. The, um, to understand this, this, let's imagine we want to write a transactional database system. That's sort of a, a mind experiment I like to do um, in order to understand things. So let's say we want to implement transactional data modification. Um, with ideal isolation. 
then there are sort of two naive approaches we could do. One approach would be that no two transactions take place at the same time. So if I have a transaction running and you want to start a transaction at the same time, you are blocked until I do a commit on my transaction. Transactions are a lot about concurrency and this is one easy way to have isolation because then, of course, if your transaction starts after mine is finished, you will always see a consistent, entirely isolated view of the world from my transaction. This is obviously not a very good approach that because it doesn't scale. It has no concurrency at all, and for enterprise systems, it just doesn't work. You want concurrency. So uh, somewhat, well, a still naive approach that is just a little bit less naive maybe is to copy the entire state of the database at the beginning of every transaction, sort of as you do with a um, version control system. You do a branch for each transaction, do the modifications in the branch, and then merge, the, merge them back when you commit. This sort of works, but it, mm, it does have significant overhead in terms of storage. Beginning a new transaction is, is, would be a very expensive operation, copying data or updating internal data structures. Um, so this is sort of the, the problem, the, the fix you're in if you want to have isolation. If you want ideal isolation, that's, that's expensive, but for many systems, having less than ideal isolation is fine. The, the systems don't require absolute isolation. Um, so for, for relational databases, the standard describes four levels of transaction isolation. We'll look at them presently. Um, the details of the implementations are vendor-specific, um, and the technology behind them... and is the same, but the names that are used are a little different between the vendors, but, well, the, the, the standard has, has standard terminology and you'll find the mapping there. But the key thing to see here is that you can set the level of isolation separately for every transaction. So you can have one, one transaction with very high isolation because this is a really key thing with high concurrency and uh, many transactions um, are pot could, would potentially conflict and then you have many other transactions with reduced isolation. So you can think about isolation on a per-transaction basis. Well, let's look at the four levels um, of, of isolation that the standard describes. The first level, well, in order of increasing isolation, would be read uncommitted, which is basically no transaction isolation as or, at all. If one transaction modifies data, other transactions see the modifications um, at the same time. This is called a dirty read. Um, you see modifications, intermediate inconsistent modifications done by other transactions. And this sounds like a very, very bad idea, but actually for quite a lot of systems, it's okay. For example, if you have web shops, um, low-scale, rather small web shops that are mostly read-only um, databases because the product data is stored there, all these read transactions on the on the tables that are very rarely updated, it's perfectly fine to have no transaction isolation there because these transactions don't do any modifications that could conflict, so you can avoid the overhead of, of having higher isolation. Mm. Or if you have transactions that work on strictly separate parts of the database, strictly separate rows, um, and your application logic ensures this, it's perfectly okay to have read uncommitted transaction isolation level. Well, but this is no, not really isolation. So um, the next level would be read committed, which means one transaction sees only those rows in the database that another transaction has, has already committed. No updates to existing rows are visible. This means um, you have no dirty reads. Um, changes become visible only after an update is committed. But there are other limitations. You still don't have ideal transaction isolation. You have something that's called a non-repeatable read. You read one row of the database in the beginning of your transaction, read the same row later on and get something else um, because another transaction committed it. Let's look at this um, from the perspective of the insurance system. Let's say I'm, I work on an insurance contract with a long-running transaction, and you sort of read this um, 
read the same contract and look at it. And while you're in one transaction um, working with it, I commit my changes, and then while you still while you are still in the same transaction, um, see different values for the um, for the rows that you read at the beginning of your transaction. For many applications, this is perfectly okay to have these kinds of uh, to have, have this kind of non-repeatable read, um, but still, it is not ideal isolation because the something that I committed is visible while your transaction is running. So you cannot rely on seeing the same state of the database throughout your transaction. The next level of isolation deals with this. Um, you have repeatable read, which means that the database remembers for each row of data um, that is read by you what the value at the beginning of your transaction was, and it always returns that, even if another transaction committed the data in between. So if I commit my, new, my changes to this contract and you do a select on the data, well, you do select before I do my commit and then you select on the same data after I commit, you still receive the data um, you, you had at the beginning of your transaction. My changes are not visible, although I committed them. So you have no dirty reads and no non-repeatable reads, but there's still some limitation to the isolation. And that is, if I add new rows to the database and you do, do a select statement and return a whole lo lot of data, you, my changes become visible. So with the, in the example of the insurance contract, let's say this insurance contract consists of several building blocks that make up the insurance policy, uh, the, the insurance policy as a whole. And I add in building blocks in my transaction. You do a select of... Um, with a WHERE clause for this contract, um, then you receive, at the beginning of the transaction, just the building blocks that were there before my commit. If you do the same select afterwards, you get the additional building blocks for the policy that I added. Um, you, you don't get any modifications to the ones you had at the beginning, but you get additional rows. This is what is called a phantom read. And if you want no phantom reads, you want to avoid them, you have what is called um, serializable transaction isolation, which sort of is the idea that things are the same as if you executed the transactions one after the other. This is a very, very expensive isolation level. It's very expensive to do, and you don't want to have this for all your transactions. But for things like, well, assigning primary keys, you often have a, a table that, um, count, that has a counter for assigning new primary keys. And access to such a table is usually done with serializable isolation because there's high concurrency on this table and you want to be really, really sure that no two transactions modify the table at the same time. As a matter of fact, um, serializable transaction isolation is not really serializable. It means that um, it's mostly as, of, as if the transactions were done one after the other. There's still yet to a situation where it makes a difference if you do them one after the other or just with serializable isolation. Um, and that is, if you read data for the first time, you receive that data at the time, at the commit state of the time when you, when you read it. Oh, that's somewhat technical. Let's go to the, um, the insurance contract example again. Let's say you read, uh, we are, I'm working on the contract and the person have the contract, the data, and you have your transaction and you read the person's personal data, like, like name and address and phone number, contract data. And then I do my commit of, with modifications both to the person and the contracts. And after that, you read the contract for the first time. Then you receive the contract data, after, um, well, the version of the contract data after my commit, because that's the time when you first read it. Um, so you have the, person, the personal data of the person in a version before my commit, and the, um, and the contract data in the version after my commit. Um, and for some very paranoid cases, this is a problem because it's not really the same as if you did them one after the other. Well, one way of, of dealing with that, if you really want, if you really need this, is um, if you have some sort of global things that actually, or if you need this, you can really serialize things in a physical way, or um, you can 
address this by historicizing data and um, have bi-temporal databases, that kind of thing. Um, but as for, the t as for the technical support of the database, um, even serializable isolation is not really serializable. And well, maybe that's enough uh, as for, for looking at the dirty details of isolation. I don't want to bore the listeners. Um, the key thing to remember is isolation is important. Isolation is expensive, and it's important to think what level of isolation do you need and how much are you willing to pay for it in terms of concurrency. So now we had a look in the deep, dirty details of isolation. How do the database systems um, solve the problem internally? This is a good question, and it actually does have some impact on, on programming, so I'll say a little about it. Um, for read-committed that is, this is the basic isolation that only committed data is visible, you have the thing, a thing called rollback segments. Well, most databases do it that way. That is, they, as, well, they sort of do a branch of the data and write modifications of one transaction to a separate part of, the, of, of disk and um, have filter all access of this transaction to, to the database. Whenever this transaction reads data, it filters it, and it, it sort of merges, virtually merges the data between the rollback segment and the actual table space. And other transactions access, directly access the, the main table space without seeing this rollback segment, which is sort of a separate part of the disk. Um, and only when the commit is done, the data is actually merged. So commit is the, is the expensive operation that copies and merges data from the rollback segment to the, um, to the main table space and then checks whether um, another transaction modified data in the meantime that was modified by this transaction as well. So if you have concurrent modifications of data, the commit fails because the merge of the two versions of data from the rollback segment of the main table space fails. Um, this is um, obviously this obviously solves the problem of, of isolation mm, at the at the row level of at, well you get read committed um, isolation but it is an expensive concept because it, well you, you sort of copy all the data when you commit it means that you need um, bigger um, rollback segments the bigger your transactions get so especially very big transactions become um, expensive with this rollback segment approach. Um, so this sort of is the reason why it's a good idea to keep transactions small, to, to keep commit cheap, and to avoid um, the, the merge conflicts, the, the concurrent modification exceptions. Going beyond that, databases use the concept of locks. Um, that is, they um, if one transaction modifies a row, it acquires a lock, there are different levels of lock, read locks, write locks, I'll not go into the dirty details here, and they're different for different vendors. Um, but the, uh, the key thing to remember or to see is um, that the database marks different rows as having been read or modified by one transaction. Um, so if another transaction wants to modify them, um, it, um, it is blocked. Mm. And the higher the isolation level, the higher the locking level is. Basically, for for serializable isolation, every if you do once any if you do a select to one table, all entries of that table are locked with an update lock, sort of like that. The optimizations behind that, but that's what it makes it important because if you want to have the same result set returned by subsequent um, selects, it means that no other transaction must be permitted to modify the data in the meantime. So. Most databases um, solve these higher isolation levels by serializing access using locks. And if one transaction has a lock and another wants to acquire that lock, it has to wait until the first transaction is finished. So higher isolation level reduce concurrency, which is the important thing to remember with regard to these locks. Mm. The details, as I said, are vendor-specific. The concepts are a little different. And also the granularity of the locks is different. Um, technically, well, no, no, logically, it would be a good idea to have locks at the row level. If you lock one row of a table, um, you have a lock only to that. But there are database systems that only lock pages. It's usually called pages of data. That is a group of, of rows. 
because that's the granularity which they use to manage their internal spaces. So um, you might have surprising reduction of concurrency using these locks, even if different transactions only access different data. There's no overlap at the row level. You may have overlap at the at the page level because data is at the same on the same page and the page is locked. Mm. The things to remember here are that high isolation reduces concurrency because databases lock data, lock rows, sometimes pages, sometimes even whole tables, and then other transactions wanting to access the same data must wait until the first transaction is finished. Um, you can have deadlocks if one transaction locks part A of the database and then wants to access part B. Well, the, the, another transaction first locked part B of the database, then wants to access part A. Um, as with, well, this is actually a concurrency thing. Um, was talked about in the concurrency episodes we did. The thing here is, you, if you start locking, you can have all kinds of, of deadlocks and and breaking of deadlocks by timeouts and that kind of um, resolution policies. But locking reduces concurrency by serializing access, which reduces throughput and is a problem for concurrency, is a problem for concurrent access to the database. Again, the key thing is keep transactions small and short to avoid these kinds of problems. So I heard that, for example, Postgres and um, Firebird as well as database implementations use a different um, approach on locking. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, I can do that. Um, PostgreSQL, for example, uses a, a history-based approach, um, which means that um, every transaction has a global unique number, and PostgreSQL remembers the global database state over all tables while the transaction is running and returns the, the data for one version number while this transaction is running. And um, so if other transactions commit data after that, it's sort of appended to a history. And um, this gives perfect isolation, um, but it is somewhat experimental still. Um, and anyway, it, is, it does have performance impacts as well. So it is a different approach, but it's not a solution to all the problems here. But yes, it is a different approach with different trade-offs. So if you want to go into this um, and it's about performance, you should definitely look at the, the manuals of the database systems you, you, system you're working with. All the database systems vary in the way they implement these, and PostgreSQL has, well, it's optional there as well, but it has an alternative approach that has some benefits for, significant benefits for some scenarios. Mm. As far as I remember, their approach is called MYCC, which stands for multi-version concurrency uh, control, right? Yeah, right. Uh, so now we talked about locks on the database level, but on the application level we have locks as well. Um, think about optimistic locking, pessimistic locking. Um, how do they relate to that? Okay, yeah, well, it's sort of the, um, the same term for different things, um, as is so often with widely used terms such as transaction. Um, the problem with locking, or the problem these application level locks solve is concurrent modifications of data at the application level. Um, let's say we have a web application, and it, it's this insurance application we used to talk about, and I have one, well, I open a case, I open a contract and work on that, and you do the same thing at the same time, shortly after me. And then I have my modifications, and then I commit them to the database, and it, as it is a web system, there. Mm, the technical, the database transaction is closed after the read. It's not kept open while I'm wor working in the browser. So there's one database transaction for, for reading the data and presenting it, and another one for writing the data to the database. So I write my data to the database, and you do the same thing. You commit your data, you write your data to the database in a second transaction. Overwriting my data without not even noticing that you overwrote my data. Last one wins. This is what happens if you have short database transactions, um, but long-running um, work um, intervals at the so, user interface, for example. So in other words, the higher isolation level on database level wouldn't help me here, right? Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't help you at all because the, the database transactions are kept short and small, as we, well, as I suggested. 
it's, it's a good idea to have con to improve concurrency, to have short database transactions, but then you, the database level locking don't, doesn't help you um, to avoid these kind of um, overriding conflicts. You need an, um, sort of a higher level solution of the same problem once again. Mm -hmm. So on um, the application level, I'm using optimistic or pessimistic locks here. Right, those are the two usual approaches that are used. Actually, most of the time, optimistic locking is the is the better approach. Um, it's sort of if you if you don't want to think about it or don't think about it, just use optimistic locking, which basically means there's a counter in every row in the database, and mm, when the when the application writes data to the row, it checks that this counter still has the same value as it had when the data was read and then increments it by one. So in the example, I, when I write my data to the database, well, well, when I read the data from the database, let's say this counter has the value five for the contract. You read the data, it's all, the counter also has the value five, and then I commit my data and the, the data, the application, when it accesses the database, checks that the counter still has a value 5, which it does. So it writes my changes and increments the counter. And then the application wants to write your data. It checks if the counter has still has the value 5, but actually it's incremented to 6 in the database. So you get an error message saying that you lose your modifications because someone else modified the data in between. This is not really ideal, especially from your perspective, because you, use, you lose your work, but at least um, it's explicit. No, no modifications are lost on the way implicitly. Mm -hmm. So you know that someone else did some modifications at the same time. Maybe you um, get the information who did it. If that's part of what is stored in the database. So you can call me and we can talk about how it happened that we both were working on the same contract at the same time. Um, so there's no implicit loss of data using optimistic locking, which is often a good idea. It's, it's inexpensive. It has no performance overhead at all. Um, and in most systems, um, it's, it's a rare case. It, it happens very rarely that people modify the same data at the same time. Um, so it works quite well in these. Actually, it's quite an, an interesting um, detail how, how you can implement this without having any performance impact. Mm. You can add a check to the where clause of the update statements and then modify the, the counter by one. So you have something like update contract set counter to six, set counter equals six, and in all the other fields of the row. In the where clause, you have where counter equals five. And then um, the, the database driver tells you how many rows were affected. And if one row was affected, that's great, because it means um, the counter still was five. But if no row was affected, it means that the counter was incremented in the meantime. So you, you know, without having any additional SQL statements you need to issue, you know that um, there was an optimistic locking problem. It's a very, very cheap approach, and that's the main good thing about it. So the opposite approach would be pessimistic locking, which means that I have to explicitly acquire um, a permission to modify data. Yes, exactly. The idea of pessimistic locking is um, that the application prevents two people modifying the same row. So if I start working on this contract, pessimistic locking would be that there is a flag in the row in the database. And um, when I read, when I sort of open the case, when I open the contract, um, this contract would be marked as it is in work. And the application would prevent any other user from, from working on this, this contract at the same time. So we can both open it, but you would have a read-only view. Sort of the same like if you open a, a Microsoft Word document, the first person opening this document from a file share um, has, can modify it, and the second person gets a notification. Um, this is a read-only version of the document. Um, uh, is that okay with you? So you still want to open it read-only? That's about this pessimistic locking thing. There's persistent um, persistent data in the database saying this row, this contract is in work and other p the application makes sure that no other person can, can work on it. Um, this is um, great for really, really, really preventing two people modifying the same data at the same time. 
but it is significant overhead because this it requires application logic to deal with this. It's hard to to get really right um, and take care of all the details because you sort of have things like I for web applications I open the contract and my browser I close my browser without saving my changes and then well the case just remains locked so you need to have some sort of timeout maybe if you if that's what you want or um, you need logic to allow some other person to break the lock to say I know this guy is on holiday and he forgot to uh, release the lock before he went on holiday so there must be some way to release the lock um, explicitly without having been the one to open the um, open the contract to have acquired the lock. You need all kind of logic around it. Um, it's very much work to implement, and the benefit in practice is often very small. So it's good to know about it, but it's not not a very commonly useful thing to do. Actually, this is sort of the long-running pessimistic lock thing. Um, if you have, want to have a lock over several technical transactions, which is what you usually have in, in web applications, because you don't want to keep database transactions open for one user over several HTTP requests. Mm. If, um, you can also have some kind of pessimistic locking for, um, for the duration of a single database transaction. Mm. If you have a, a rich client application, you might open it to a transaction when the, um, when the data is read and then close the transaction when it's written back again half an hour later. Um, in that case, you can use things like select for update or use these technical um, locks of the database to implement pessimistic locking, which reduces the overhead significantly because the database takes care of all these timeouts and... Um, implicit lock release things for you. So now I know about optimistic and pessimistic locking, but when do I use which strategy? Okay, well, as I said, optimistic locking works well if there's, it's very unlikely that there's a conflict anyway. Um, so if most of the time people sort of talk to each other before opening the insurance contracts in, their, in the application, um, it's a rare case that two people are working on the same contract at the same time, so there's no problem there. Um, optimistic locking is very good for that and pessimistic locking is a good choice if you have huge modifications where it's a really really bad thing if someone loses their changes because someone other made someone else made a change in the meantime or um, it's also part of can also be part of sort of a workflow like thing um, if a contract is handed from one person to another then there's always one person who is responsible for this contract in scenarios like that pessimistic locking can be a good idea um, well, the main thing to remember is don't ignore locking. Mm, if you ignore locking, just means that the last one to write wins, which is usually a bad thing. And if you're in doubt, use optimistic locking. Use pessimistic locking if you see significant benefits for your application, for your application logic from pessimistic locking. Okay. Actually, there, there, there's something about the names. Um, the names are sort of weird. Um, they both solve the problem of, of preventing concurrent modifications, but the, the names are the names stem from, from the attitude behind them. Optimistic locking means, well, I, I want to be really sure that no concurrent modification occurs, but I'm sort of optimistic that it's a rare case that two people do the, um, modify the same data at the same time. So I'm optimistic that it's a rare thing to happen anyway, so this is just, um, well, it's, it's just okay to, to notify people that one person lost their work, but it's a rare thing I'm optimistic about. And pessimistic means I do these heavyweight precautions um, because I expect the worst to happen, and if I'm not, re I don't, well, if I'm not really sure, no, if I don't really ensure that no concurrent modification can occur, then people will always do the worst. That's called sort of the attitude behind pessimistic locking. It's a little like working with version control systems. CVS has the optimistic lock approach. Everyone can modify the same things and commit, and, the, and CVS tries to merge modifications 
if two people modify the same thing, and well, sometimes you do get a merge conflict, but that's okay. This is sort of the optimistic approach. And the pessimistic approach is sort of explicitly checking out um, um, and locking files from version control systems. Other version control systems support this. And this is sort of the difference between optimistic and pessimistic locking. Yeah, clear case is one example for that, right? Yeah, well, most others offer both, yeah. But clear case yeah, is one of those that offer um, offers locked locks. So in the first part, we talked about database transactions. Now we talked about application-level locks. Um, they sort of solve the same problem. But um, yeah, maybe you can say something about that. Yeah, sure. Um, as I said at the beginning, transaction, the term transaction is used for different things, really. Um, first, we talked about the, the strict technical transaction concept. And this, these application-level locks go more towards the business transaction thing. Um, and um, it's a, they solve the same problem of preventing concurrent modifications, of isolating changes from one another, of, of, um, but it's a technical decision with, well, with valid trade-offs either way, how long you want to have your database transactions open. Um, for call center applications with which clients, it's common practice to have dedicated database transactions for each rich client and keep them open all day long. And that's fine. Then you can use um, the pessimistic or you can use database mechanisms, database transaction mechanisms for locking. For web applications with high concurrency um, requirements and indeterminate large numbers of users, um, you want to have very short technical transactions. And then you sort of add, need to add this layer of application level locking on top of them. Mm -hmm. So they basically solve the same problem, but with different trade-offs um, because, well, depending on how long you want to keep your database transactions open. Mm -hmm. Okay. Before you said, um, ideally, I close them as soon as possible and um, keep the transactions as short as possible. But in some cases, as you just mentioned, um, this is not possible, which leads us to long-running transactions. So what do I have to keep in mind when um, I have to use long-running transactions? Well, actually, long-running transactions is, again, one of those things that can mean several things. Long-running transactions can mean, as in the example of the, the call center application, that you have technical transactions that are open for a long time. Um, but more often, the term long-running transaction refers to long-running logical business transactions. The, the longest one I heard about is um, the, the, the process that a new medicine has to go through from its invention until it's approved by the authorities. This can be several years. So this is sort of one transaction. Um, and if it's um, not, um, if, does, if this new drug doesn't receive permissions to be used, this is sort of a rollback logically. Mm -hmm. But um, until it's actually committed and um, validated, it can be several years. So th and you obviously don't want to have a technical transaction that's open for such a long time. Originally, the, the database transaction was invented to reflect the business transaction. And, um, well, the, it was sort of the, well, and then SQL sort of was the, the user's user interface to the application. Um, we've gotten a long way since then, so we can have um, long-running transactions which cannot be reflected by the technical database transactions at the, um, as well. Um, obviously, if you have several technical transactions, the from the database perspective, um, you don't have ACID um, properties over this long term. If they are not atomic for, um, from the database perspective, and they're not isolated from the database perspective because you can, well, other technical transactions can see changes there. So it's absolutely application logic to implement this. Um, and um, one typical approach to this is to implement a state machine um, that one case, for example, the, the drug application or the insurance contract application goes through from initial through completely 
um, entered into the database. Next state might be approved, and next state might be approved by the boss, and then actually signed and valid, something like that, um, with different transactions there um, between these states. And then it's up to the application logic to deal with this um, with these states. And you might, for example, implement the, the isolation by having the applications in one database, and only when they're finally approved and the contract is signed, they're copied into a production database. And only then they are um, visible to the booking system that takes care of the financial parts of the contracts. Um, or you can have, um, well, the simplest case would be that you have a flag if the contract is complete, complete and signed or still preliminary, something like that. The key point is it's up to the application logic to deal with this. Um, and if somewhere along the way one of the steps fails, this is just a transition in the state machine. So, you, for example, to the state rejected of the contract, which means the application, the business transaction, um, the business case, or the, no, the business case, the, the business transaction of going, the, uh, of bringing the application to the signing to the signing state, um, fails. It's rejected, um, but it is not a rollback at the database level but rather you have something like an inverse transaction. Um, you sort of undo the modifications you have made preliminarily and then bring the system into a new consistent state with a rejected contract. Um, it's good to think about, um, well, it's good to think about this in, at two levels. One of them is actually the transactional part. You want to complete one thing, the whole thing, and if it fails, you undo things you did before. And the other is to see, deal, to see this sort of as a workflow with, um, with a state machine with transitions be between the different states and, um, and actions you need to take, uh, to take when you do the transitions. Isolation can be an issue because sometimes it's very important that um, one user, that only the user working on the contract can see the details. If the payment of the person working on the contract um, depends on the things he's entering there, um, it's important that other people, co-workers, are not able to see this. So it's, it, it can be an important issue to see, uh, to, to, to prevent others from seeing preliminary modifications, but that's up to the application logic. Another context in which this concept appears is actually in, in long-running um, workflows, and this is what what happens often now in service-oriented architectures, um, where some different systems cooperate to do to to create some um, some result. And there, basically, you don't even have technical transactions. You don't have the infrastructure for technical transactions spanning all kinds of different systems. So um, one system. Um, deals with the application, the next one enters data into, or the next one checks the consistency against the some back-end system, the next system um, notifies some technical infrastructure, let's say for, um, for a telephone company, and um, if this third step fails because some, some of the data does not really match or cannot be mapped to the technical infrastructure, then the whole thing must be rolled back. But you can do a technical rollback so you sort of need to do an in what's called an inverse transaction or compensation transaction. You sort of, in a new technical transaction, you undo the modifications beforehand. Um, it's the same thing that, bank, that banking systems do when a transfer fails. If you do a, a transfer from one account to another, um, first the money is, first a, a new row is entered to your account history saying the money is deduced and it's transferred to this other account and then later, maybe you um, gave a wrong account number to transfer to, so your transfer fails. So a new row is added to your um, to your account balance sheet, stating that the transfer failed and the money is again added to your balance. But those are two different rows. It's not a technical rollback of the transfer, but it's an inverse or compensation transaction. 
this is a, a good um, good thing to keep in mind for long-running transactions that um, spend longer time or spend more things that can be than can be done in a single technical transaction. So now back to technical transactions. So far, we looked at transactions with um, regard to a single stateful server or database. Um, but what if I have several servers or databases involved? Uh, you're probably talking about um, distributed transactions, two-phase commit, XA compliant, that kind of thing. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's sort of popular to have these, and it's one of the, the buzzwords that all application servers um, need to have. The idea is, um, if you have several databases participating in your transaction, um, you might want to do modifications to one database and to another database, um, or to a database and a messaging infrastructure, or a local database and a web service, or whatever. Um, you want to um, commit the data only if all systems, or you want to have atomicity across several systems. That's typically the, the, the driver behind it. And consistency. Um, well, yeah, con consistency, but atomicity in the term of either the changes to both databases are committed or none is committed. Mm -hmm. And it's this, yeah, com consistency is sort of the idea behind it. It's, one of the, the, it's the vaguest part of asset. So, yeah, this is what it's about, to keep several databases, several, several resources um, consistent, to sort of um, merge several um, local technical transactions into one. Um, well, the naive approach would be if you're finished doing things, so you write data to one, one of the databases, write data to the second database, commit the modifications on the first database, commit modifications on the second database. Um, and often enough, this is great, it works fine, but if the second commit fails, if the second database says, no, I don't want to commit this, for whatever reason, you have already committed data to the first database and you have lost your atomicity and your consistency across the different systems. Um, um, actually, there's two different kinds of scenarios against you which you can guard here. One is that um, one of the systems participating refuses to commit for, well, let's say there's a locking issue there. It notices that it cannot commit because some of the modifications in the, um, conflict with other modifications that were made. The other is that um, some of the processes maybe might be killed. So let's say your the committed data, the, the changes to the first database, and someone then someone kills your process in a hard way. Kill minus nine on Unix or something like that. Um, so that, the um, that your process is just gone and didn't get the chance to, to commit modifications to the second database. Or someone pulls the network cable before you were able to commit changes to the second database and that way you lose them. Um, those are the scenarios that sort of drive the fear um, towards two-phase commit. Um, actually, there is a standard there. It's the XA protocol for two-phase commit. And the first prerequisite is that all participating systems support this protocol. Um, they are all XA compliant. Um, relational deba databases usually do. Messaging systems often do. Web services basically never do. Um, and um, so th many, many um, mainframe systems don't have two-phase commit support. So this is the prerequisite in order to be able to have these XA two-phase commit things. All participating systems must support the standard. The second thing is you need a transaction monitor. That is, you need a, um, some, some, some process, some system that coordinates all the different databases and messaging systems and all the other um, systems that participate in the um, um, distributed transaction. Um, application servers often have a transaction monitor built in um, and there are standalone transaction monitors as well. And if, well, if these prerequisites are present, um, what happens basically is that your application code tells the transaction monitor, I want to commit. And then the transaction monitor asks all participating system to do a pre-commit, that is to check all prerequisites and have them be really sure that they can commit, that they 
that they won't have any objections against committing. Check all their constraints and everything, but do not actually do the commit. And only if all the participating systems vote, yes, I want to commit, and I'm willing to commit, only then, in a second step, that's where the name two-phase commit comes from, in a second step, the transaction monitor tells all participating systems to actually do the commit. And this, this guards well against um, the, the second system says, oh, I can't really commit problem, because they all voted, yes, I will commit. But it, there's no guarantee that it actually goes through in ca case you pull the network cable at the wrong time. Um, it actually can mathematically prove that it's not possible to have any protocol that really, really guarantees um, consistency in all kinds of, um, of evil hardware failure scenarios. Um, so it's basically a guard against the, um, the, the, the late no notification or the too late notification that one of the systems says, I cannot commit but it's not a, a per perfect guard against hardware failures. Um, it's good to keep that in mind. Um, and actually, um, two-phase commit is very rarely needed. A far more common approach is to have some sort of orchestration engine um, that um, talks to all the different kinds, of, all the participating systems, especially in a web service where, um, world, this is very widely used but it's useful in other scenarios as well. So you have one central part that sort of talks to all the others, and if one of the systems says, oh, I cannot commit, then an undo transaction is, perm is done, and um, the modifications are, are undone. It's sort of um, it's what we talked about in the um, long-running transaction part. This often, often works very well, and um, two-phase commit is far overrated. It's very rarely really useful. It's very, very expensive to have not only in monetary terms, but in terms of, of resource use as well. So it's good to know, to know about it when you need it, but it's often the better approach to think about um, the compensation transactions you can do if some later step fails. Okay, I guess um, that wraps the episode. Let's do a summary. Okay. Um, transactions are, are an important concept. Um, Ideally, transactions have the acid properties, atomic, that is all or nothing, um, consistent, meaning this is what's behind it, you want to have consistent data, um, isolated, meaning while one transaction is running, other transactions, other people cannot see intermediate states, and durable, the data is actually stored in a persistent way at the end of the transaction. Long-running transactions, especially if you have high isolation are expensive and cause concurrency issues because isolation is often implemented using some kind of locking, which means that um, if there's a lock conflict, um, other transactions will have to just wait until one transaction is finished. So the rule of thumb here is reduce isolation as far as your application can deal with and keep transactions short and small in order to avoid the overhead because large transactions tend to be expensive. Typical database systems support four levels of isolation. The first one is read uncommitted, the next one is read committed, repeatable read, and finally serializable. Yeah, exactly. If you keep your transactions short and small, you often read data in one transaction and write data in another transaction after it's been modified, especially in web systems. Um, and that means that your application needs to take care of um, ensuring consistency. Optimistic locking is the best approach to, to use there um, because it doesn't add any overhead and oftentimes, or most of the time, it's just sufficient. Um, if you have long-running transactions, um, the application logic needs to go further and ensure isolation, maybe even read isolation, so that other users may not be able to, to see intermediate changes. Um, the data goes through different states as in a state machine with transition be transitions between them. But it's up to the application logic to actually deal with these isolation things. And if you have something like a failure where you would roll back a technical transaction, this means you'll, that you do a compensation transaction or inverse transaction, um, sort of adding another modification that undoes the changes, the, the effect of the changes you don't want, want to have anymore. And with regard to two-phase commits and... Um, and XA compliance, short thing is, remember that they are there, but then forget about it. Most of the time you don't really need them. 
well, that about that's about the way I'd summarize um, what we what we talked about here in transactions. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks, Arno. Thank you, Bent, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. If you want more information about the podcast and all the other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. If you want to support us, you can donate to the SE Radio team via the website, or you can advertise for SE Radio, for example, by clicking on the Dick Reddit Delicious and Slashdot buttons. To contact the team, please send email to team at seradio.net, or if it's specific to an episode, please use the comments facility on the website so other people can read and react to your comments. This episode of Software Engineering Radio, as well as all other episodes, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. Please see the website for details. Thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsafe Music Network for the music used in this show. The song is called Vegas Hard Rock Shuffle. <laughs>